Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, we're going to be talking about antidepressants and how they work. Because we know they do work for most patients, right? When we, we, we have a patient with a moderate to severe depression, for whatever reason, for most people, SSRIs work. But how they work has been up for debate for the last while. I will be getting into the nitty gritty of it and understanding how we go about measuring d- depression uh, in a few minutes time. If you'd like to comment, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. You get to all of those uh, comments later on in the podcast. Now, it's time to look back at the week's science news and joining me is Dr. Susan Kelleher from the DCU School of Chemistry and Dr. Oren Kennedy from the Department of Anatomy and Regenerative Medicine at RCSI. You're both very welcome. Oren, our first story has to do with cannabis. Yes, Jonathan, thanks very much. It's great to be here with you. I've been a regular listener recently to your show. Well, the context here in this paper is about cannabinoids and they're basically any chemical that activates uh, cannabis receptors or cannabinoid receptors in the body or the brain. And the two main ones of interest here are THC, has a long chemical name, but it's basically the thing in cannabis that gives you the strong effect, the elation effects, uh, feeling high, but also responsible for the sort of negative effects, anxiousness, and even psychosis. The second one is called CBD, it's cannabidiol, but it is thought, or it has been thought to modify or regulate those effects and and sort of have an an antidote effect to that very strong effect of THC. So in this study, they they modified the levels of CBD. They had uh, low and high basically, and they thought that maybe using higher levels would counteract the effect of THC, but they basically found that that wasn't the case. They also looked at whether these effects are different in adults versus adolescents, because there was a thought that these effects are worse in adolescents, and they found no difference in that either. So it was done by researchers in UCL University College London and King's College London as part of a, a wider study around the UK. Um, and that bigger, wider study around the UK is called the CAN Teen Study. So it's a multi-institution study, CAN, C-A-N-N, meaning cannabis, and teen, T-E-E-N, meaning teenagers. So um, they, there's a bunch of people working on this to try and figure out the effects of, of cannabis on uh, younger people. How do you do a study like this? Because you're essentially giving like drugs to uh, it says here 16 and 17 year old uh, boys and presumably girls yeah, yeah so they recruited people who were already uh, cannabis users and they recruited an adolescent group that's uh, it was a 16 17 up to 19 years old and then adults who are 26 to 29 and they brought them into a sort of a controlled setting that they have set up there sort of a clinical institute where they monitor these things very carefully and they gave them uh, not cannabis off the street, but they gave them very specific levels of sort of synthesized THC and CBD, the two things that they were studying, and they gave it in a vaporized form in a very controlled setting. So that's the way they set up the study. And like, did these teenagers end up getting high or having psychotic they, they, they did. Uh, episodes, or like, uh, you know, getting paranoid and that sort of stuff? They did, they did. And they all, they, they sort of reported their uh, responses and their feelings, you know, at certain times after they, they had the intake of cannabis and yeah, they had the regular kind of uh, the regular effects that cannabis gives that like, you know, some felt high and elated, but others felt anxious. And there were even there's even episodes of uh, of sort of of psychosis or uh, those kinds of responses as well. How do you give a 16 or 17 year old a psychotic like episode? I mean, I can see here it's, it, it has passed an ethical approval committee, but um yeah, it's a tricky, it's a very tricky thing. I suspect that setting up these studies is very tricky and I suspect that the regulation and monitoring of them is very, very tight. It's, it's quite, I suppose it's quite difficult to 
to, you know, to understand this without doing trials in humans. And even though it says here that the, these were regular users, um, it's still, I mean, it's still very, you know, very yeah, yeah it is, it is. In- interesting that that, that this study yeah. was done. But um, if these were already regular users, Oren, does does it? Does it really tell us about what happens in the early days of using cannabis? Because if they are regular users at 16 and 17, presumably they could have been um, using cannabis since they were 12 or 13. Like, are we really getting a clear idea of what's happening in the brain if we're if we're approaching regular users and seeing how those drugs use in brains that are used to them? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's one thing that they basically don't address at all in the study. That's the, the new user who presumably has a sort of a bigger step to take in terms of their responses to the drug. What they're really focusing on is, I suppose, is chronic use in younger younger people versus older people. So people who already use, and they do make that point very clearly. But I suspect it's not it's not addressed in the paper. But I suspect there is a sort of a bigger jump in in brand new users, but that's not addressed in the paper. Uh, very interesting, Susan. Our second story has to do with elastic metal. Yeah, this is um this is a story about an elastic that can keep gases and liquids out. And if you think about your package of sliced ham that you buy the plastic that's used here to keep it fresh is hard okay so you know you can go into the recycling and and it's hard this means that what the molecules of the polymers are really dense and really really closely packed and if you were able to look at it with like a super resolution microscope that don't quite exist yet and you would see that these molecules are really really tightly knitted so to speak and so nothing can pass through no gases no liquids so that's what keeps your ham fresh now, elastic materials, so materials that are elastic, and we know what that means, they can move freely, they're very flexible. This is much more loosely knit. So if you think about your microscope, you're going to see a lot more molecules not being as closely knit together. So this gives the materials much better properties around flexibility. And molecules, however, like gas, like oxygen that are very small, or water, for example, can pass through these. So they wouldn't be very good at protecting your ham from going off. But Researchers in North Carolina State University have developed an elastic material, so with all the flexible properties, and that sort of breaks the rules. Essentially, what they've done is they've used the most wonderful metal we talked about, um, gallium, which was the the main metal in the the shape-shifting robots that listeners might remember, and they mixed it with um, indium. So these are two metals that, when they're made into an alloy, are liquid at room temperature. Hmm. They use this, yeah. So that alone, I'd say, would be great fun to work with in the lab. But what they've done now, uh, these researchers have coated a polymer, so coated an elastic polymer with this, a very, very, very thin film. And what that does is it allows the molecules in the, well, it keeps the, basically keeps the elasticity of the material, but it stops the um, permeability of it. So no longer can the oxygen and water transport through the fibers and through the molecules with this metal coating on them. So it's quite, I mean, it's quite futuristic. I mean, it's pretty snazzy stuff. Um, and it's nice because it's changing, I suppose, the, what the basis of polymer chemistry can do. It, it kind of bends the rules a little bit. Um, mm. No pun intended, but, you know, keeps that flexibility <laughs> while also kind of adding... Um, this non-permeable character to it. So this has probably got high-end uses that I am unaware of. It's it's unlikely to be adapted by Brady Ham uh, in the coming years. <laughs> yes. Uh, what w- what are the uses for this? Yeah, I mean it's really expensive. Okay, so like these metals don't come freely. They're very very expensive. They are looking to be fair. They're looking at trying to put the smallest film that they can on it. You know, essentially think about these 
these, the metals is filling the gaps in the close knit. So they don't need a lot of it to stop the permeability. So they're really trying to reduce the cost of it, but it's not going to have um, effects, uh, uses on a large scale. But what they're looking for is basically where you want something that's still flexible, it needs to be permeable. So maybe some biomedical applications where you need to oxygen transporting into materials that, that needs that, but then it has to be flexible as well. Or, or they've said maybe also flexible electronics to protect them. So keeping water out, but keeping them flexible as well. So it'll be very niche, but I mean, I think it's very nice. They, they also haven't tried to oversell it as being the biggest answer to everything in the world. But um, I think it's a really nice, again, I'm a polymer chemist, so I'm particularly, I find it particularly interesting to read the paper and see how they did it. But um, some nice creativity here. Our third story, Oren, has to do with more AI. And here it seems that people trust fake people more than real people. Yeah, this was an interesting one. You had Dr. Laura Dungan on talking about AI being used for uh, generating proteins that don't actually exist, you know, for genetic diseases and all that kind of stuff. Fascinating stuff altogether. But this, so this is a sort of a darker, more anthropomorphic version of that story where this group of researchers, they generated a bunch of faces of people that don't really exist. And then they tested on uh, subjects whether they could tell the real face of a real person from uh, one that they had just generated, you know? And then the second part of the study, what they did was they, they first of all, they said, you know, could people tell these two uh, groups of faces apart? And then the second uh, step of the study was they they tested, would they find, would people find one or other group more trustworthy, which was an interesting one. And how they did it was quite interesting too. Uh, and then when they were told, some of the people were told that there were fake faces in there, they asked people how they felt about the whole thing, basically. The basis for doing this was that it would have implications in all kinds of online interactions, which are obviously becoming so much more ubiquitous uh, and lots of good ones. But I suppose there is an overtone in this study about all the bad ones, which tends to come to the surface in, in stories like this more often, I guess. Um, so, you know, the sort of subversive element of this and all of that. But uh, it was a really interesting study. The group used uh, a GAN, which is Generative Adversarial Networks. It's a neural network, machine learning kind of thing. And it's it's particularly good at coming up with images, images that don't exist. So they, they, they use that system, machine learning system, and they asked people to see what they, whether they could tell the difference. And basically, yeah, they, people couldn't tell the difference and they thought that the fake faces were more likely to be real, which is interesting. Huh. Within that, they, they found a couple of other interesting things. Um, for example, I don't know, I would think if you were looking at fake faces, you, you'd, you'd look for ones that look more perfect. But they actually, I guess the, the machine learning algorithm knows that you would do this. So faces, they had this in there kind of, I'm not sure how they assessed it, but faces that looked more attractive were more likely to be fake, people thought. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. So for me, at least, that means I'll never be accused of being a fake person, I would say. It's <laughs> good for me. Um, yeah, and then they, they did this uh, test where they asked the participants to guess the number of digits on the screen. There was a big cloud of numbers. And then they gave them a hint and they said, this other person over here has guessed this number. And the face beside that hint was either real or fake. And that's how they decided whether people trust the fake face versus the real face. Right. OK, yeah. So basically, you looked at the face and you decided whether or not to trust that hint. And exactly. you were more likely to trust the hint if it was fake. Yes. Than real. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, and then the last part of the study, they told some people 
that there were fake faces in there somewhere. And another group, they didn't give them that information. And basically, when people know that there's fake AI generated faces, they're just more suspicious about the whole thing. And that was sort of to represent basically everybody online who knows that there's phishing out there and there's this and that. So I suppose that's to be expected, but it was interesting to see it kind of quantified and codified, you know? It's really interesting to see what's going on in the AI world at the moment. I mean, Google announcing um, their rival to chat GPT-3. And then, you know... um, these amazing image generators such as OpenAI, but um this i mean i i mean i'm agnostic you know whatever whatever people as consenting adults do in their own time but i think the idea of ai generated pornography is actually a lot more safe if it's you know if, if it's realistic it means no one real gets harmed afterwards or there's no regret of doing it and you know, to be honest, if it if it has the same effect on a on a, a person who's consuming it, much better it be AI generated and realistic than than not, in my opinion. So, I mean, yeah. it's a really interesting world we're in, and like we're we're at this yeah. tipping point. If you haven't delved into the world of OpenAI or ChatGPT three, we are really on the cusp of something very extraordinary tipping over, not quite into general intelligence, I think, but into a world where that line between what's real and what has been generated from the internet is is very very fine it's un- it's unbelievable in my own field like it's exploding in terms of image analysis every aspect of, of everything is is beginning to develop a, an ai angle on it there's something going around online about you know how quickly new technologies have reached either one or 10 million users it's fascinating you know so it starts off with telephones and it took 75 years to reach uh, is it one million or 10 million users and then it goes down 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 and you know, Instagram took 13 months or something like that. ChatGPT took five days. So it's just wow. one of those really interesting infographics. Yeah, very interesting. Susan, our final story, pollution makes you bad at chess. Yes. So um, this was published this week in the journal Management Science and it reported that chess experts make more mistakes and bigger mistakes when pollution is high, air pollution. So the work looked at the performance of 121 chess players in three seven-round tournaments in Germany. So this was substantial. So over three years, um, 2017 to 2019, and analysed more than 30,000 chess moves. Now, what they did to figure out whether or not the the players were going, you know, making an error was they compared it against um, an open source chess engine called Stockfish. So they would see what move the player made and then they would see, well, actually, was that the best move that they should have made based on the algorithm? Hmm. So they use sensors to monitor the conditions in the room, including the noise, the temperature, the CO2 levels and the levels of these fine particular matters, which is basically tiny particulate um, in the air that are less than 2.5 microns in size. So they're the ones that kind of do a lot of damage when we think about air pollution. Um, nice. And the findings showed that the levels of these particulates, when they were higher, players were 25% more likely to make a mistake and that the magnitude of those mistakes increased by 10%. So they were more likely to make mistakes and that they were going to be bigger mistakes that they made. 25% is significant. And this is a big Mm. data set. I think, you know, sometimes you hear these headlines and you're like, oh, this just sounds like junk science. But this is a very controlled environment, very easy to check data as to whether or not a move was a good move. Mm. And an increase of 25% when you have those particulates. I mean, that is a pretty good study, is it? So I'll just say it was the more likely, so it was the probability of them making a mistake was 25%. So they didn't make 25% more mistakes, but they were more likely to, if that means. So the probability was higher. But how do they know what they were probably going to make the mistake if they didn't make the mistake? So so the number of actual mistakes was only 2.1%. So that's the actual number of mistakes, but the chances of them making any one mistake compared to... You don't know what, what mistake I'm about to make. 
I guess there, I mean, there, there's analysis, probability analysis of all this. You're not going to play a perfect game of chess, right? So what the machine will do will be 100%. It'll be perfect, right? And then what any player will do will be, there'll be an error of, there'll be a probability that they will make a mistake over the lifetime of 40 moves of the game, right? So out of 40 moves, somebody might make a mistake. You know, there's going to be didn't, yes. But if they don't make the mistake, why didn't they just record the errors made? So what they've done is they've said in any one game, there's going to be a, a chance that we know that there's a chance that somebody will make a mistake in a chess game. And then what they're saying is when they've looked back at all the data, they can say, well, look, if there's air pollution in, involved and there's increase in air pollution, then there's going to be a higher probability if you're playing in these conditions of you making a mistake. And that's 25% increase in the likelihood of you making a mistake. Right. And how many actual mistakes then do, do these guys typically make? So over, I mean, these are professionals, so that's one thing to be said. But this showed that there, the study showed that there was 2.1% more mistakes being made over the right. course of these 30,000 moves. Well, look, we, we all know that's a hugely significant amount when you're playing chess, right? When it's chess, I mean, that's what the authors say. They, is the game over. Like, yeah, it might sound like a very, very small amount, but in chess, it's really fine margins, right? I mean, 2.1% more mistakes. And when those mistakes are bigger mistakes, so the magnitude of those mistakes is larger, then it's a big problem. And players already know this because some professional players are already beginning to actually monitor their air quality and the CO2, especially if they're playing in, in their own home environment for online tournaments. So they're sort of really doing wow. everything they can to try and limit, I guess, sluggishness or, you know, the things that will, you know, maybe not allow you to focus as well on a game. I wonder will we see oxygen masks start to appear in <laughs> poker tournaments and that sort of thing as people try and get the, the 2% age. Really interesting. Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU School of Chemistry and Aaron Kennedy from RCSI. Thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> Now, when it comes to dealing with depression, it's usually only when it becomes moderate to severe in a patient that we turn to pharmacological treatments. Under constant scrutiny from the medical community and beyond, antidepressants like SSRIs are both celebrated and reviled. For many people, they're transformative and an effective treatment. For others, the results are not so positive. So how do they work and why is depression so difficult to cure? Well, joining me now to try and answer these questions is Dr. Christelle Langley. She's a cognitive neuroscientist at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. Before we even start this, do not make any decisions about your health, particularly uh, to make changes in your medication based on a conversation with a fool like me on the radio. Speak to your own doctor, right? Your doctor. Um, to Christelle, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for joining us. Let's start off by just, uh, I guess, giving us a medical definition of, of, of depression and whether or not that, that changes year by year or do we, we have a very distinct idea of what depression is from a medical point of view at the moment? Hi, Jonathan. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Um, no, so there's definitely a, a fairly clear definition of, of depression and it doesn't change year on year. Uh, so essentially depression is a common mental um, disorder and it is sort of associated with uh, sort of extended feelings of sadness. Now, there are uh, distinct ways of, of diagnosing um, depression and there's something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, and this is something that psychiatrists or doctors would use to uh, make uh, an official diagnosis of depression. And this, for example, states that an individual must be experiencing five or more symptoms 
Um, and this is, as I say, the main thing is this pervasive. It needs to be sort of a long term. It's not just feeling sad or depressed mood. Occasionally, it's sort of most of the day, nearly every day. Um, also, things like markedly feeling this uh, diminished interest or, or pleasure in general activities. Um, and quite often, it's also things like feeling fatigue or feeling guilt and worthlessness. Um, so there's actually a number of things that sort of play into into what we consider as, as depression as a whole. Yeah, the, the only reason I was asking whether or not our definition uh, has changed uh, is because I know in the DSM, definitions for things like bipolar disorder and, and other things um, change a little bit over time. But, but depression seems we have a, a clear idea of what we, what we call someone when we say they're depressed. Yes, I would say so. I, I know what you mean that, that, that bipolar and some of the sort of more, um, I don't want to say modern disorders because because they are, um, they've New, been around for a very long time yeah. as well. But exactly, you know, we're sort of, as we're gaining more understanding about these uh, diseases, sometimes, as you say, the definition changes. Uh, but no, depression has been, has been a fairly stable uh, de- uh, definition for a while. So um, obviously therapy is um, a therapy and, and uh, um, cognitive behaviour therapy and, and lots of other treatments are are one way of treating it. In this interview, we're just going to be talking about um, the medical interventions and, and specifically antidepressants. What um, what do antidepressants do in the brain to try and counteract this feeling of uh, of a depressed mood for a long period of time? Um, so depending on the type of antidepressant that you take, um, it essentially tries to um, change some of the um, neurochemical transmission in the brain. Trying to break that down, there are um, neurochemicals, for example, serotonin or dopamine um, that are often called either the happy or the or the feel-good chemical. Um, the majority of antidepressants actually work on the chemical known as serotonin. That's not to say that all of them do, um, but essentially they try and either um, alter the way that serotonin transmission is happening in the brain. We typically think that this is uh, increasing serotonin, um, but it doesn't seem to be as simple as a straight. It just gives you more serotonin. It, it seems that there's a way in how these drugs are actually um, affecting your brain that allows for more what we call plasticity. So it allows for you to um, sort of have this altered thinking. Um, and this is quite often where things like cognitive behavioral therapy will come in. Um, and actually that they they try to, to make people think about, you know, their life in a different way, how they could see um, something innately negative as actually um, being slightly more positive. But often, unless you um, sort of get this plasticity going with the medical treatment, the CBT often can't work as effectively. Right. Okay. So um, these antidepressants, how did we discover them? Do do you know? I'm putting you on the spot now. But, um, you know, uh, because we don't really fully know how they work is my understanding. We'll get into that in a bit. But when when did we first figure out that these do help some people who have depression from feeling those feelings? They've been around sort of since about the 1950s. Mm. Um, And like I said, there are definitely a, a, a number of different antidepressants. And they've come quite a long way as well in 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 sort of recent years. Right. So um, when we're testing a, um, an antidepressant or a drug, um, we go through um, various tests, including model models of uh, the of depression in animals, which is which is a tricky thing to do, right? To to model depression in an in an animal that doesn't have perhaps the cognitive uh, power that that we have, um, you know, self reflection and 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 those sort of feelings. How do we define 
depression in a mouse, for example? How do we know if a mouse is depressed? Um, so quite often, a lot of the animal models, as you say, they they use uh, what we typically actually use as, uh, or term as stress tests. Um, and they're not, they're not, as you say, necessarily the best, the best sort of um, description of how depression takes place in in a human um but so there when you, are when you also- say stress tests um you, you like you you put the um you, you see how these mice like continue to struggle if they're in in, in, in under stress i think i read something about yeah, da- dangling so, a mouse so over some water and seeing how long it struggles or that sort of thing one of them yes one of them is a stress test about about placing a mouse in water um and how exactly as you say almost how 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 long they struggle and the thought is that if they they show this thing sort of called called despair where they just sort of stop struggling um that those are mice that that might display more tendencies of depression right there are a number of other ways to test even even in animal models and and a lot of that is more related to the work that we do where actually they'll look at um for example, these reinforcement tests that I said. So, so they will feed mice with a, a certain pellet. They'll teach them for, for a, a test, for example, and they'll get rewarded with a pellet. Um, and quite often, the depressed mice don't show the same sort of tendency to to want that reward. Essentially, right. they they sort of they're not as motivated. The sort of by joy that in life reward. isn't there for them. It, when you um. When you do that, do you have to induce? Because I know, look, and, and we've spoken in this program about animal testing, unfortunately, at the moment uh, for, for for medical approval and, and of various other reasons, animal models are used in science and we're not going to go down that road. But um, how, how do you, do you have to, can you induce depression in mice or do you have to figure out which mice are depressed before you can do these sort of tests? So there are some of them, there are, uh, and this is where some of the explanation of, of, for example, genetics comes in. So there are certain things that we call knockout mice, uh, where either a certain gene will have been taken away from the mouse and they will, um, they'll then display a sort of greater tendency towards depression. Mm. Um, or sometimes um, they do sort of an early deprivation. Um, and essentially what this means is... Um, that mice, uh, when they're born, they'll quite often be given less bedding, for example, um, and and this sort of is to sort of mimic the fact that they're they're raised in a deprivation sort of environment, um, and often again these mice sort of display greater tendencies towards depression, or sometimes the mothers as well, um, when they feel that they they're not able to nest in the way that they would. Right. It, I mean, it's it's a crude, I suppose, uh, analogy for depression in a way, but uh, you can't do this sort of work in humans for obvious no, reasons. No, right. exactly. So, and the way we do this in humans is obviously very, very different as well. So um, how is that done? So, um, for example, some of the tests we use, we, we look at more um, how they react to either negative feedback, so like the reinforcement um, learning tasks that that we've specifically conducted in our study, and then also something called a negative attentional bias. Uh, so putting this into sort of an easy term, uh, quite often people walking down the street will focus on on all the happy faces they see, whereas someone with depression will focus on the single sad face that they see. Um, so for example, a test that we use very routinely for depressed patients in, in um, humans is that they'll see various faces appearing on a screen. Yeah. 
and we'll ask them to respond as soon as they see the emotion. Um, and typically, healthy people uh, respond towards the happy faces much faster, uh, whereas patients with depression focus much quicker on the um, negative faces. So sometimes the face that will be sad or angry, for example, their their what we call reaction time is much faster. So they seem to notice these negative emotions far quicker uh, than we'd see in, in healthy people. And then, like I mentioned, the the reinforcement learning, similar to the the pellets and animals, that's why that might be a slightly better model, is the ones where we'll um, ask people to do a task um, where they either get rewarded or or not. Um, and quite often, these tasks involve an element of uncertainty. Um, so essentially, this means that um, even if they choose the correct stimulus, they'll be rewarded, let's say, four out of five times, but one out of five times that they're actually misleadingly told that they're incorrect. Um, and patients with depression are sort of overly sensitive to this negative feedback, hmm. and then they respond inappropriately the rest of the task. So so what I mean by inappropriately is that they'll shift their responding and try another stimulus, even though they actually know they're responding with the correct one. It's, it's, I mean, like, I, we're talking about um, a condition sort of in a scientific and abstract way, but it is such a horrible um, thing to have to go through by the science of it. I, I've only had ups and downs in terms of mental health, um, most, mostly because of COVID. Um, but, but to have a sustained period where you feel that mm. low, it must be an awful thing to have to do. And, and antidepressants, obviously, for some are a real gateway. But um, th- there are questions around whether or not they um, emotionally blunt people um, and, and whether or not this idea of a chemical imbalance is the, cr- is, is the right story when it comes to what is happening in the brain when we're depressed. I was wondering what your take was on that. Uh, yes. So I think, I mean, I think depression is extremely complex and I'd, I'd like to sort of touch on what you said about it being such a difficult disorder. I, I, I completely agree. I think something that, that long term is, is extremely difficult. And I think that also makes the sort of treatment very difficult. Mm. And of course, as we know, people, you know, we want to say that people are individuals and actually this does show in depression as well. Um, so we don't know an exact cause of it yet. And I think it's not as simple as saying that one thing causes depression for everyone. Um, there, We know there is a genetic component. Um, we just don't know that there's a, a definite. So it would be, for example, if a first order relative, for example, if your mother had depression, the child would be more likely to get depression, but it's it's not a definitive, they will have depression. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a similar thing. Um, there has been some research recent research that, that has said that there is uh, sort of no chemical imbalance. Um, but there's also been a, another study which did PET imaging, which is actually um, specifically looking at, is actually able to directly measure the serotonin levels in the brain at a given time. Um, and they have actually shown that there is uh, reduced um, what we call s- uh, serotonin release in depressed patients. Nice. Um, so I don't think it's quite a simple it seems answer. To go, is... It seems to go back and forth, Christelle, um, between, and, and see, people seem very animated about it. Obviously, some people are very you know, strictly against the idea of, of, of um, medical uh, antidepressants at all. And then other people um, uh, really re- realize the value and the the benefit that it has given to so many patients and as again I say again if you've just joined us um we're talking about uh, antidepressants do not make any changes to your medication as a result of of this 
a conversation, obviously. Uh, um, we're, we're just looking at the, the science and, and mechanism of it. So what is your research then, Christelle? What, what do you look at? Um, so what we specifically looked at with uh, this study is, for example, how an SSRI would affect the cognition um, in healthy people. Um, so there's been quite a lot of the f- uh, work in the field examining how serotonin affects cognition, but this has often only been done acutely, which means sort of single dose or in short term, which is seven day administration. Right. And, um, and mostly people but, have these SSRIs for weeks and months. Exactly. Right? They take them for months or sometimes even years. Hmm. Um, so we really need to have a better understanding about what their potential long term effects might be. Um, and the reason we specifically also used healthy people was actually that we're able to look at how serotonin specifically affects the brain without potentially being confounded by the disease process of of depression, for example. Right. So you gave SSRIs um, to healthy people to understand how it affected their thinking. Correct. And um, specifically, we use the SSRI called escitalopram. And it's we use this one specifically because it's one of the best tolerated SSRIs. Um, and then we used a number of different tests assessing what we call both cold and hot cognition. So cold cognition is rational, non-emotional cognition, which is things like memory and attention. Um, and then hot cognition is something um, that has a component of either social or emotional cognition. Right. Uh, so we'd often use these when we're interacting with other people, for example. And then we were also very specifically interested in this, what we call reinforcement learning. So this is a really important behavioral process, and it allows us to learn from our environment through either positive or um, negative feedback. So what did you find? Our key novel finding was that escitalopram had specific effects on reinforcement sensitivity on two different tests of reinforcement learning. So the lower reinforcement sensitivity essentially means that participants weren't reacting to the feedback in a way that we would expect them to. Uh, So what I mean by this is that typically, as I said before, if you receive a reward, you continue with that stimulus because it is rewarding you. So ultimately, that is the optimal choice. Um, And what it seemed to be that these participants are doing is they're not that associated to the reward. So they try out the other stimulus every now and again, even though they'd known that they weren't going to get rewarded for it. Mm. And this is important because actually it wasn't the overall reinforcement learning. So they learned just as well as as the placebo group. It was specifically this this sensitivity. Um, And this is why we said that this might be similar to the blunting effect that is reported by patients that often take SSRIs. Um, And essentially the emotional blunting is this uh, where patients report feeling emotionally numb and not reacting to positive or negative events. Right. God, so, so your your experiment sort of uh, uh, showed that that this is this is a thing that that being that people aren't as excited about rewards, and I guess you know while that's one study and and more work needs to be done to sort of understand that it 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 sort of validates, I suppose, what many people who who are who are are taking SSRIs might feel. Um, so that's re- really interesting. Um, we research and I suppose it's something that we have to keep looking at over and over again because it is um, anxiety and depression are on the rise and affect so many people and, and really can transform people's lives. Fascinating speaking with you, Dr. Christelle Langley from the University of Cambridge. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, that's it for us on this week's podcast. Hope you enjoyed the programme. Thanks to Marais O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. 
Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.